It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Julian DeStoop with you. Hope you had a fantastic weekend. Slightly overcast in Melbourne today as we begin a massive two weeks. There's only four Grand Slam tennis tournaments in the world and we are lucky enough to host one in our great city. And after two years of COVID restrictions, the Australian Open is back in all its glory in 2023. As always, the next fortnight of tennis will throw up controversy, extreme heat, temper tantrums, shock results, and some amazing matches. But with no Ash Barty this year, can a local hope make it through to the business end of the tournament? I have always been a player that doesn't need too many matches. Um, You know, I played 12 to 13 events last year and felt like that was a lot of tennis. So I'm always going to have to keep that in mind. You know, obviously there are players that that need a lot of matches going into a Grand Slam. But me, I just like to feel fresh. I like to feel like I've got everything under control. Um, but there's so many capable people here, so you know to, you know there's all this talk about you know me being a favourite and you know big expectations. I'm just trying to take it a day day at a time. You know there's so many people here that can cause damage. So um, yeah, I'm just doing everything um, everything right at the moment. Like my whole career, I've been improving. You know gradually, uh, like day by day, I, I try to keep on improving on myself. But I'm probably going to say. Uh, physically and probably belief-wise. I think uh, for a while now I've had the level uh, that I know I can take it to these top guys. And, you know, just recently I've had uh, those wins to kind of back that and and give me that confidence to know that, you know, I can do that uh, often. So I'm happy with where my level's at, where I'm at, and hopefully I get more chances to play against these uh, top guys and, and take it to them. Yeah, I'm definitely up and about. I think I've got a bit more in me uh, this time than I did last year. Um, yeah, although I won the tournament in Adelaide sort of last year, I feel like I'm playing better tennis this time around. Those are the voices of Nick Kyrgios, Alex Dimonor and Thanasi Kokonakis who all begin their singles campaign tomorrow. On the women's side, of course, Ash Barty is retired. She's given us a great run at the Australian Open particularly in the last couple of years, won it last year, semi-final the year before. And all our hopes this year on Isla Tomjanovic coming off a really strong season, uh, a couple of quarterfinals in Grand Slams. But unfortunately, she was forced to succumb to a knee injury before a ball was even hit. This is the worst thing that really could have happened this year, and it did. So now I can just kind of take a moment and see where I go. I had surgery, what, like six, seven years ago, and hers just the same, so... It sucks. So sad news for Isla Tomjanovic and listening to Brett Phillips this morning. That Where that leaves her for this year and how serious that is, we'll just have to wait and see. So Igor Sviantek, the clear number one in the world, is the red-hot favourite to win the women's crown. Same with the returning Novak Djokovic on the men's side. But the nine-time champ is battling a hamstring concern. I've been struggling with uh, with that a bit, to be honest, um, the last seven days. But I'm being a bit more cautious. I'm not going full out on on, on the training sessions. So um, you know, conserving the energy for for next week, and hopefully it won't cause a, a, an issue for me then. Defending champion Rafa Nadal is fit, 
But by his own admission, he's vulnerable early after a lack of recent wins. I have been losing more than usual, so yeah, just that's that's the truth. And then I need to to live with it and just fight for the for the victories. So Nadal takes on Brit Jack Draper today in what many believe is a danger match for the two-time champ at Melbourne Park of the Australians John Millman, Jason Kubler, Olivia Gadecki, and Talia Gibson are all in action on day one. And if you're looking for reigning Wimbledon champion Alina Rubikina, controversially, you'll have to track out to court 13. So we'll chat everything Australian Open and get the predictions for the next couple of weeks with Mark Woodford, uh, who will join us uh, in the next 10 minutes or so. Of course, it's the last chance you get to see Sam Stozer. She's in the women's doubles. She's in the mixed doubles. She announced uh, over the weekend that uh, it's all over for her uh, after this uh, tournament. Now, speaking of controversy, once again in the Melbourne Derby, the Big Bash delivered. No man cab this time. More a man-made issue. Sutherland into Clark, who's scored hit the this roof. one. It has hit the roof. And it's six. That would have been caught. A horrendous ruling, because that was straight up the chimney. Not straight up. It would have landed at mid-wicket. They've called it six. Will Sutherland is absolutely fuming, because someone would have been under it. It would have been caught. Why is the roof shut on a night like this? Rogers into Webster, who scores this one. I think it's hit it again. It has. Straight up in the air. Two roof balls from the Melbourne Stars. That was going straight up. That would have that would have hit, uh, landed at the other end of the pitch. They've been dreadfully unlucky. Dreadfully unlucky. Well, that would have been two simple catches tonight then. Well, they're both straight up. Cost them 12 runs, which is wrong. I reckon it should be one hand or something, one hand off the, off the roof. That was Melbourne Stars captain Adam Zamper at the end of that package suggesting one hand off the roof, which would uh, be a bit of fun. Don't think it's going to happen. So what's the solution here? It's not the first time we've seen uh, balls hit the roof at Marvel Stadium. The rule was changed after an Aaron Finch six, but surely you can't just be giving six every time the ball hits the roof. I mean, in a game like T20 cricket where every run is important, uh, you can't just be giving a six for every time the ball hits the roof. So what's the solution? Uh, give us a call, one 736 736 You want to talk about the tennis as well. The 40 Winks uh, Temper Tech 0433-981116. Temper, a mattress like no other. Um, surely it's just a dead ball. The ball hits the roof, dead ball, and uh, it doesn't happen that often. Uh, but uh, if it does, it's bad luck for the batter. But on the two occasions on the weekend, those those balls were going straight up and would have been caught uh, most likely. In the end, it didn't cost the Renegades. They got the chocolates over the stars uh, in the end by six runs. But uh, surely that rule uh, needs to be changed. We've been talking about you know some interesting rules in sport recently, particularly in cricket with the man-cad and now the balls hitting the roof at uh, Marvel Stadium. On our McCafe menu today, as we mentioned, Mark Woodford, uh, will join us very shortly. Andy Harper, huge weekend, particularly in the English Premier League. Controversial uh, weekend, a controversial goal in the Manchester Derby, which Manchester United went on to win 2-1 against Melbourne City. Uh, Melbourne City. Manchester City, uh, which is a great result for Arsenal, who beat Spurs this morning. Uh, some disgraceful scenes at the end of that game, whereas Tottenham supporter kicked out at the Arsenal goalkeeper, um, 
Aaron Ramsdale uh, after the final whistle, which was uh, terrible. But significant weekend, so Andy Harper will discuss all that. Benny Graham with the NFL playoffs. And we'll talk to Gareth Hall, who was up there for the Magic Millions. And, of course, uh, what a schmozzle that was in the end with only two races uh, being run on the Saturday due to the big wet up there on the Gold Coast. But Alex from Northlake has uh, jumped on the line first, wants to have a chat about, I think, the basketball. G'day, Alex. G'day, Julian. Yeah, I went to the basketball as a member on the weekend Wildcats versus Adelaide, and yep. they had the um, roof or the, opened the roof for the for the game. I saw that as a gimmicky dirty uh, exercise, but for the spectators, in, particularly myself, I was absolutely roasted by the sun. Ah, okay. So, what sort of percentage of the the crowd would have been sitting in the sun? It'd be hard to say. It'd be at least ten to twenty percent, and. It was just absolutely shocking. It, just, it was unbearable. You don't go to a game expecting to be sitting in the sun in, a, in an enclosed stadium. Yeah. What, what time did that game start? Local time? Five o'clock. Okay. If it started an hour later, it would have been perfect. Yeah, that, that's disappointing. I love the open-air game that we have here at John Kane Arena. I don't think we've had the issue with the sun at that game before. Uh, so that's disappointing, Alex. I, I love the concept, but... If, if the spectators are going to be in the sun and it makes it you know, either too hot or hard to watch the game, that uh, is far from ideal. Thanks for your call. Uh, Clint from Ballarat wants to, uh, Sorry, let's go to Billy uh, from Ascot Vale first. He wants to talk about the ball hitting the roof. G'day, Billy. Yeah, morning, Jill. Yeah, just quickly, can I just think, why, uh, why was the roof shut in the first place? It was such a hot night and there wasn't a cloud in the sky. And um, with all that fire and events going on inside, I thought and I would have had the roof open. I can understand if it was raining, but it was such a beautiful night. And I just don't know why they had the roof closed. Was there any reason? Well, I thought I read on Saturday night or maybe yesterday that there was they shut the roof because the indication was there was a chance of a thunderstorm on Saturday night, but I never saw that in the forecast uh, for Saturday. So that's why, yeah, like you, Billy, I was very surprised that the roof was actually shut for that game. So that that was the I'll, – I'll, I'll double-check that in the break, but that's what I read uh, either Saturday night or Sunday, that, that, that they shut it as a precaution because there was some sort of talk that potentially there was going to be a thunderstorm on Saturday night. Thanks for your call, Billy. Let's get to Clint in Ballarat. Good day, Clint. Good morning. How are you going, fellas? Good, mate. How are you? Yeah, terrific. I think Novak Djokovic has got a point to prove to the Australian government, and I think he'll win it easy. It's going to be tough to beat, uh, no doubt about that, uh, whether he's got a point to prove or any time he's here in Australia. His record is unbelievable. Nine-time champion. Now, Clint, he's got a bit of a hammy, though. Does that uh, does that worry you? Uh, no, not in the slightest. Okay. You going to the tennis at all? Yeah, 100%. Beautiful. Today or how many times are you going? Oh, I go every second or third day when I'm away from work, so... Beautiful. Well, you enjoy, Clint. It's great that uh, there's no COVID restrictions Thanks, this year. And I'm sure there'll be massive crowds at the tennis again. Now, Adrian from Rover wants to talk about the cricket. G'day, Adrian. Julio, how are you, buddy? Good, mate. How are you? Not too bad, not too bad. There has to be a fairer way to do this with this roof at Marvel um, because the thing is essential. Um, it was a joy seeing the Scorchers play the Renegades a few years back when it was absolutely coming down sideways. Mm. If we'd been at the G, we wouldn't have gotten a game of cricket. So no, I agree with that. I think... We have to remember the roof can be a detriment to fielding side and batting side because you don't want to call a dead ball when a ball is going to go for six and then lose the game by two. Um, same as you don't want to miss the opportunity yep. for a wicket because the ball goes for six when it goes straight up. So what about something like a mathematician who's got a bit of a brain <laughs> working out some angles and saying, well, if the ball comes off the bat and hits the roof at this angle given the height of the roof, 
that would have been a six, and yep. basically draw a giant circle. And if it hits the roof outside the circle at six, if it hits the roof inside the circle, uh, dead ball or, or backflip, something like that, basically given given the uh, fielding side, at least not the, um, the detriment of losing six runs or something like that. Someone's got to be able to work out what angle the ball has to hit the roof off the bat to be a six versus to have landed inside the field play. Don't mind it, Adrian. We had a, yeah, I think the boys on breakfast had a similar suggestion uh, where you could somehow, I don't know if you could do it, but use the Hawkeye technology, which would show whether that ball uh, or the ball that hits the roof is going for six or not. But uh, it was a bit farcical there on Saturday night. The two balls that were skied uh, were just given six automatically. But your point is right. There, there is other times where the ball's clearly going for six, and therefore if you called it a dead ball, that's unlucky for the batting team. So there's just got to be uh, a better solution. Uh, more time to take your calls uh, very shortly. one three hundred seven three six seven three six. Keep them coming through on the temper text. Zero four double three ninety eight eleven sixteen. But after the break here on mornings, for the Hyundai Tucson Turbo Diesel, which is in stock now. We'll talk to Australian tennis great Mark Woodford for a preview of the Australian Open. Welcome back to the show. Julian DeStoop with you. Not too far away from the action getting underway at Melbourne Park. SEN will be there for the entire tournament. We're lucky enough to have this man back as part of the SEN tennis commentary team, a man that knows what it's like to win Grand Slams and uh, be at the business end of majors. His name is Mark Woodford and he joins us this morning. Morning, Mark. Uh, good morning. How are you doing? Very well. I uh, hope you're going well as well. Does it feel like it's almost back to normal this year? There's no COVID restrictions. Uh, the, the crowds can flock in and it's, uh, life's a bit back to normal at Melbourne Park. Finally. Finally. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, the Australian Open is just like the other Grand Slams. I mean, they've, they've all suffered over the last couple of years uh, thanks to the uh, pandemic. And, uh, you, you know, this is the first step back to normality and... Uh, um, you know, so it makes it all the more exciting. I mean, we're known as the, the happy slam, and uh, I, I think it's just going to keep growing from here. Despite all that last year, it was an amazing tournament. Obviously, what Ash Barty did, you know, our first local winner since 1978. And then on the men's side, it was an amazing final, an amazing performance uh, from Rafa Nadal to win. Just looking at the Australians uh, this year, Mark, obviously really disappointing to lose uh, Isla Tamjanovic, who clearly was our, our best hope on the women's side. But out of, you know, Kyrgios, Demonor, and I guess Kokonakis as well, can you see either of those three making a, a run deep into the second week? Or given, I guess, particularly with Nick, his lead-up hasn't been perfect, that might be might be too much of an ask. Yeah, I mean, we were in a frenzy last year, weren't we? I mean, we... Uh, the excitement of seeing Ash Barty end up winning the, the title. And uh, it had been such a, a long period of time since we've had uh, a singles winner on the men's and women's side. So, you know, with Ash winning last year and now her retirement, we, we all switched to who is the next chance? What's the, the next best thing? And I think clearly it is Nick Kyrgios. I mean, he has shown the talent um, that, uh, you know, he's promised us so much over the last few years. But it's been a really tough ride for him. You know, it's uh, um, the physical demands as well as the, the mental side. And uh, it's been really challenging for him. But he showed us at Wimbledon last year that he is very, very close. And I don't think too many people re- really recognise how close he was to actually winning the title um, and, and being away from two sets of love lead against Djokovic. But look, it's a learning curve. Um, and I think he would really love. If it's not a Wimbledon title, I think the, the, uh, the, the next one that he would cherish is the Australian Open. But unfortunately, we just haven't seen him play in the build-up. And it is a, a really tough hurdle to overcome. 
um, you, you know, if you don't have any lead-up form. And it's the same as Isla Tomlanovic. And, you know, a lot of the promotions around the summer were based on Tomlanovic and Kyrgios, and we haven't seen either of them play. But I, I do expect Kyrgios to, to go deep into the tournament. And, uh, you know, the challenge is, though, can he, you know, withstand all of the focus and all of the hopes that Ashbardi shouldered last year? Can Nick Kyrgios do it? And in the way of uh, uh, the title is Novak Djokovic, who he would have to face in the quarterfinals. And I think that's probably the biggest challenge for Kyrgios. Yeah, he certainly speaks about feeling that weight of expectation, but just his overall mentality, Mark, since he made that Wimbledon final, it, it seems to have changed, but now he's happy to talk up his chances at a tournament. He, he says he's one of the best players in the world. He says, you know, it's changed now, where he was always you know, this sort of dangerous player in the draw, but now he sees himself as one of the leading contenders. How important do you think it is that that mindset changed um, given to how he used to speak about his own game in the past? It's huge. It's huge. When, when you can step onto the court, you know, it, it's, it's not a, a, about the words. You've got to be able to, you know, do the damage with your racket. Um, words can obviously set yourself up, but then there's that fear of failure as well. And, and look, every tennis player, and I'm even talking about the very best in the world, um, if uh, you, you know, you have some doubts along the way. But uh, I think Kyrgios, you know, after Wimbledon, um, you know, it's, it really has impacted him in a positive way. And I think we've seen some of these changes. He's been able to follow up, uh, you know, the rest of the season and tease us with the hope of, of doing well. I think we were all like, uh-oh, you know, when he withdrew from the United Cup. But, but look, he's very conscious about trying to take care of his body and be ready for this big assault on the Australian Open title. It's not going to be easy. I mean, there, there is probably a bit of a target on his back because I think, uh, you know, in a way, the, the way that he um, uh, holds himself and, and probably, you know, speaks about his chances, you, you know, there might rile a few players along the way. But, uh, look, he's going to have an immense crowd support because, look, Australians, we, we want to see a home champion. We had it last year with Ash Barty. And I think the chances of Nick Kyrgios this year, certainly playing at home, improve. We're speaking to Mark Woodford, previewing the Australian Open, of course. He's part of the Australian Open uh, SEN tennis commentary team. Just on Alex Demonor, he's been that player that's sort of been able to regularly get to fourth rounds, but hasn't maybe not had enough weapons to challenge the best players in the world. Is this the year he can go a little bit further, not only here, but in other Grand Slams around? Or do you still think he's a a little level off the, the really big names at the top of the tennis? Well, don't, I don't think we should underestimate uh, Alex's chances. And that's, isn't it that's unfortunate because we, we do talk or tend to focus on Kyrgios because we've seen this, um, we've recognised his talent for a number of years. But Alex Dimanar is one of the greatest fighters out there on the tour. He's certainly up there with one of the quickest around the court. And he just has a superb attitude. He is so professional. And I think, uh, you know, last year was certainly a, a season where maybe he discovered a little bit more about himself. I think, you, you know, his stature, probably his build, uh, you know, he's been out-muscled uh, in some of the grand slams and certainly against some of the more marquee players. But he's been gradually picking up major wins. And uh, look, at, at last year's Davis Cup competition, 
uh, he was the best player um, there competing with all the nations. And he was only nipped in the very last match by Felix Auger-Aliassime, who also was in with an, a, a chance of mm. winning the Australian Open. But Alex is a fighter. He is one that has uh, belief in his ability. Um, and, you know, he might fly under the radar. And I think in that sense, that helps his chances. You can never discount one of the great fighters. Let's hope so, because uh, he's, he's a fantastic player to watch. We'd love to see him go deep. Just on the two, I guess, the big names on the men's side. So Novak Djokovic's form is fantastic, but he's got a little hamstring worry where Rafa's fit, but he hasn't won much lately. Is that a concern for either of these two men going into this tournament, and particularly today for Rafa Nadal? How big a danger match is this potentially against the Brit Jack Draper? I, I'm, I'm really, I think this, is a huge match for Rafa. Um, I, I would be more concerned about Rafa's chances of even, you know, getting through this first round today than I than I do with Novak. I think I think Novak is just, um, you, you know, it's a niggle. It's it's something that does happen with with players, um, uh, and also given his limited uh, match play last year, so he's still trying to get back into top flight competition, and I. The matches that he played in Adelaide uh, were, were beneficial. I, I don't really foresee any issue with Novak, but it is the opponent of Rafa Nadal today, Jack Draper. He has a game that annoys Rafa. Um, you know, Rafa wants to, you, you know, keep the rallies going. He wants to, to find rhythm and, uh, you know, probably the best of five-set format is where he has a, a slight advantage, but he hasn't, he hasn't been winning matches. He's low on confidence, and this Jack Draper, this this young lefty from the UK, he is a dangerous player, and I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if uh, we see a major upset occur on the first day today. Would be a huge story if uh, Rafa goes out in the first round. So, by the sound of what you said there before, you you, you think Novak is the favourite? Who, who's and I think most people do. Who, who do you think is his biggest danger in this tournament? Well, I've, I've uh, you know, scanning the draw, as we all do. You know, you look at the draw and you think, wow, look at this potential matchup along the way. I think for Novak, he has a quite a smooth draw um, in, in his half. I would expect um, on the other half, I wouldn't be surprised to see Daniel Medvedev back there again uh, in the final. And, and obviously, you know, losing last year with the lead that he built up against Rafa. Um, and, and from that probably point on it wasn't a a a fun 2022 for Medvedev but I I think what I saw in Adelaide when he was playing I I think he you know loves the the court as well it it plays to his um, strengths so I wouldn't be surprised if um, you know he can sneak through but watch out for a young American Taylor Fritz he's in a good section of the draw as well as I mentioned him a little earlier, Felix Auger-Aliassime. Mm. Uh, he has a major game. And, uh, you know, last year, uh, the, the wins that he had throughout the season, he picked up four tournament victories. Uh, he was unblemished in Davis Cup. Uh, and I think he's riding a, a confident streak, besides the fact that he has Tony Nadal in his corner. Yes. So he knows a thing or two about, <laughs> you know, what it takes to win. So... Um, but, you know, you mentioned the Australians and, uh, you know, that it's really a bit key. It's, it's, you know, this is an opportunity for, you know, Australian fans to just jump on board behind our guys. And it's not just about Nick. It is Demon. 
um, and Tanasi and the, the, the number of other players that have uh, you know benefited from wild cards. So um, a, a great opportunity for the, the Aussie guys, you know, to keep building their ranking and reputation. Now, one of the other big stories last year, of course, was the doubles victory for the Special Ks in front of crowds that we yeah. haven't really seen at tennis before. But listening to Tanasi yesterday, Mark, he's basically said there's no chance to do it again. Hey, hang on. I thought you were going to say we haven't seen that before um, since the Woodies last were, were, well, were playing. It was a bit more of a <laughs> congenial crowd that watched the Woodies. You, you didn't quite whip them up into a frenzy like the Special Ks. Maybe you should have. Yeah, I don't, I don't think we, we we weren't the frenzy type of uh, pair. We we, we just uh, I think we beat our opponents softly, you know. <laughs> oh, it was a different kinder. era. It was a different era. <laughs> it was. We were we were more of you tuck your shirt into your pants and you know let it let it hang out on the. Uh, but the, the, the Tanasi and uh, Nick, the special K's are uh, a formidable comp- uh, combination, and I was surprised to to hear about Tanasi. Uh, his comments um, that, uh, you, you know, he's not really rating, uh, you know, their chances for a repeat performance. Um, you know, as, as I said to them last year when Tom and I were uh, presenting the trophies to them, that they can repeat. They are a dangerous pair. Mm. There are so many of these double specialist teams that are, are, are playing the two of these days. You know, they, they do um, get very tight and... Uh, edgy when they're having to play against two quality singles players that, that Nick and Tanasi are. So um, I, I don't see any problem uh, with, with or concern. Um, so I might, when I get to, to, to Melbourne and down the courts and see Tanasi hanging around, I think I'm going to have to give him a bit of a kick in the backside and, and, and think, hey, you know, it's, it's a winning. You guys can win the title again. Yeah, give him a clip. Give him a clip yeah. uh, for us. A little clip across the year, I think. Uh. Yeah. Come on. Not, we don't want this defeatist South Australian attitude. Tanasi, you're meant to be a winner. Good. Exactly. Not good. <laughs> Look, I, I think for Nick and Tanasi, though, they, they uh, focus, as they should, they focus on their singles. But that's not unusual. Uh, it, it, it goes back to, you know, even Todd and I. I mean, you know, we always cared about singles. That's the priority. And I, I think with Nick and Tanasi, they probably you know, feel like that maybe playing singles and doubles at the same grand slam can sometimes take away from their performance. But that's that's why you lean upon each other. That's what teamwork and uh, working as a duo is about and, and to alleviate and help each other through the tournament. Just one more before I let you go, Mark. On the women's side, obviously Igor Fiontek is the red-hot favourite to win. I just want to ask you... Is it disrespectful that the reigning Wimbledon champion, and we know scheduling is such a tough thing to do in the early rounds of an Australian Open or any Grand Slam, but is it disrespectful that the defending Wimbledon champion, Alina Ribikina, has been shunted out to court 13 for our opening match? Yeah, that, that, is, that is an odd scheduling uh, uh, concern. And I, and I think if I was uh, Elena, I would probably, you, you know, maybe just make some inquiries as to, you, you know, how, how it happens. Um, you know, you can only beat who is up the other end. And this year, she beat all of those that stood before her at Wimbledon. And she's always going to be remembered now as a Grand Slam winner and probably more so as a Wimbledon champion. So I, I think it, you know, it, it uh, is a bit odd. Um, but, but look, at the, the organisers, when they sit down with the ATP and WTA uh, supervisors, it, these are issues that they do discuss. Um, and it, but it, it is a little surprising 
to see her there. But then again, you know, she might also enjoy just, you know, trying to fly under the radar um, because, look, when you're announced as a Wimbledon champion, you know, there's a bit of pressure um, that goes with it. It's just not an automatic victory. So, you know, she just might enjoy building herself uh, round by round um, as the tournament unfolds. I'm just trying to put a positive spin on it <laughs> for her. <laughs> I like the way you did that. Hey, Mark, great to have you back as part of the SEN Tennis Commentary team. We look forward to catching up over the next couple of weeks. I hope so. Great talking to you. Great to chat to Mark Wood. Remember, see the first ever Australian paddle open at AO 2023, the newest racket sport with off-the-wall energy and keen on playing tennis after watching it. Hire a tennis court at playtennis.com.au. Tennis court hire. No membership. No worries. Uh, running a little bit late. Let's get to Anna Pav in the newsroom. Welcome back to the show. Julian DeStoop with you. Great to chat to Mark Woodford. Uh, we're just... Uh, Going through the news that uh, Eddie Jones is back as the Wallabies coach. So Dave Rennie has been sacked. We'll speak to Tom Decent from the Sydney Morning Herald uh, just after 10.15 uh, this morning. Huge story in the world of rugby. Uh, NFL playoffs going on at the moment. Uh, If you don't want to know any of the scores of the game that's going on at the moment uh, or the games earlier today, maybe just uh, cover your ears uh, for a sec. So, of course, yesterday Jacksonville came back from the dead to defeat the Chargers 31-30, and the 49ers defeated the Seahawks 41-23. A lot closer in the first match this morning, uh, where most people thought the Bills would do it quite comfortably uh, over the Dolphins, but in the end, they snuck home the Bills 34-31, and currently it's the Vikings playing the Giants. The Giants lead 14-7 at the moment later on today. It's the Bengals uh, in action against the Ravens. And tomorrow, to complete the wildcard weekend, it's uh, Tom Brady's Tampa Bay Buccaneers coming up against the Dallas uh, Cowboys. Of course, we started the show talking about the tennis and also what happened at Marble Stadium uh, on the weekend where two balls hit the roof in the Melbourne Stars innings, uh, both given six, even though it appeared both balls uh, would have been caught because they basically went straight up uh, in the air. So some of the suggestions uh, off the 40 Winks uh, temper. Keep them coming through. 0433-981116. Consumer's Choice winner. Temper mattresses, pillows and adjustable bases conforms to the exact shape of your body. Uh, or give us a call. 1300-736-736. Uh, seen this one come through a bit. bit like the old uh, backyard cricket. Hitting the roof should be six and out. Um... Whoever decided hitting the roof should be an automatic six is an idiot. It can't be anything but a dead ball, says another. Um, They have a ball tracker to show how far a six would have gone into the crowd. Why not just use the ball tracker to determine if it was going to be six? If it wasn't, it's a dead ball, says two rocks. That's come through a little bit. Uh, It has to be a dead ball. The ball is re-bowled, so no disadvantage, says Bill. And I like this from Steve because every year, you know, with certain sports, there's certain terms that are used. Tennis is, is full of them. Uh, but this one always gets a, a run about a player that's unseated. They might be a veteran coming back from injury or a young player we don't know about. They're referred to as a dangerous floater. And Steve reckons that uh, Jack Draper, who plays Rafa Nadal, is a dangerous floater. And we just heard from Mark Woodford, who said, this is a very big danger match for Rafa Nadal, defending champion. And he, he basically said he wouldn't be surprised wouldn't be a massive shock if uh, Rafa Nadal uh, lost to Jack Draper today. So we'll see how that all unfolds uh, down at Melbourne Park. Uh, this is nice to see Andy from Terrelgan, 
has uh, rung through. Andy, Happy New Year, my friend. Happy New Year, Shields, my good friend and good mate from Melbourne. How are you today, mate? I'm very well. How's the start to your year been? Uh, pretty good. I've uh, just been working, that's mostly, and having diets when I get a chance and then go around and do some stuff around my local CBD. Beautiful. What do you got for me this morning, mate? You looking forward to the tennis? Yeah, it would be, be good to see some tennis, and then hopefully there will be some more football and cricket coming up next few months after that. Plenty to look forward to. Plenty to look forward to. Uh, what, what question you got for me this morning, mate? Okay, my good friend and good mate, and see the Australia Open begins this morning in, mm-hmm. in Melbourne. Name me three male and female greatest Australian tennis players ever. Ooh, good one, Andy. That is a nice one. Well, on the men's side, we can't go past Rod Laver. He is, you'd have to say, our undisputed uh, number one uh, tennis player, Ken Rosewall, who I saw was at Melbourne Park yesterday, uh, looking fit as ever, uh, Ken Rosewall. So he'd have to be uh, in the conversation as well and probably have to say Roy Emerson. They would be our three greatest uh, male uh, tennis players, uh, you know, sort of in our lifetime, Andy, we haven't had a, a heap of, you know, dominant uh, men's tennis players. You know, Leighton Hewitt, of course, was world number one, won a couple of grand slams. Same with Pat Rafter. Uh, and we've, you know, we've got some good players at the moment, but we haven't had ones that have been able to rack up uh, the multiple grand slams like they did sort of 50s, 60s and 70s. Well, on the women's side, you can't, you can't go past uh, as controversial as some of her views are, as a tennis player, Margaret Court is undisputably our greatest ever female uh, tennis player. Uh, you've got Yvonne Goolagong and in, in more recent times, uh, Ash Barty. So uh, we've been lucky. We've been a great tennis nation. And uh, particularly what we saw with Ash Barty last year was just uh, fantastic. So, yeah, great question, Andy. I hope you enjoy the tennis, mate. And we will talk again very, very soon. Speaking of great players, and I think... She probably doesn't get the credit she deserves because there's always been a big focus on, you know, obviously tennis is in everyone's mind at this time of the year. And Sam Stowe's is so often just, she just couldn't get the job done at Melbourne Park. Not only not get the job done, but she just, she just failed to fire. To be honest, at times it seemed like the weight of expectation uh, got the best of her. You know, even when she's world number four in the world, she couldn't progress to the second week. But she's been a fantastic player. She really was our number one female player for so long, world number four, won a US Open against Serena Williams in 2011, made a French Open final. Now, we know she's been retired from singles uh, for quite some time, but she's now retired full stop following this tournament, so she'll play mixed uh, with Maddie Ebden. She'll play in the women's doubles as well. Uh, She was on the Today Show yesterday, and she spoke about uh, how she came to this decision that uh, this will be her last professional tournament. Yeah, I mean, it's been very, very hard. Um, I think when you do something for this long and something that you absolutely love, um, it is hard to step away no matter, you know, what else is going on. But I, I do feel like the time's right. I've been doing this for a long time. Um, you know, there's a few aches and pains. There's a few, uh, you know, days that you're like, do I really want to pack my bags again and get on another plane and all of that? But, um, you know, I still love I still love going to tennis. I still love practising. Um, and, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'll probably be a bit back down at the NTC in a month's time having a hit with one of the girls or something. Yeah. But um, no, it, it does feel right. It's been a, a great journey. So, yeah, I really couldn't have asked for any more. And always handled herself so well, Sam Stozer, even in those disappointing days at the Australian Open. Always uh, was classy, um, even when she was going out uh, in the early rounds. Uh, plenty of time to take your calls throughout the morning, one three hundred seven three six seven three six. 736 Keep the text coming through on the 40 Wings Tempo, 0433 98 11 16. This is Mornings 
for the Hyundai Tucson Turbo Diesel. It's in stock now. Mornings on SEN. Rashford, is he on? Bruno Fernandes! The flag is up! Fernandes runs to the assistant. He's saying that he wasn't offside. But Rashford was. Huge moment this now in the game. Could see Rashford off here, but does he touch it? He doesn't. He doesn't touch it at all. I think Rashford realised he could let it go, and it's been given. The roar will tell you that the derby is back to 1-1. Marcus Rashford made every effort to get out of the way. The protests will be long, and they will be loud from City. But Manchester United are back on level terms. And it's the captain who's led by example. Well, if Rashford has left that intentionally, it is a very clever piece of play. I think he knew his position, Connor. I think he knew that he's, he was likely to be flagged. Controversial equaliser for Manchester United in the Manchester derby on Saturday night. To make things worse for City, uh, Marcus Rashford went on to score the winner not long after that. So time to talk some world game both here uh, and also abroad with the man that everyone loves uh, when he's on air here, Andy Harper from Paramount Plus and Channel 10, uh, their football expert. G'day, Andy. Jules, how are you? Very good. We've got a lot of love for you after our segment uh, last week. So uh, people, Jeez, that's a rare thing. people wanted us to talk every day. <laughs> That's a rare thing. And make hay while the sun shines, eh, Jules? Absolutely. Now, last week when you were on the show, you put on the agenda your frustration with the with the handball law and how it's yeah. being adjudicated. What about the offside rule and, yeah. and players interfering with play? Because surely Marcus Rashford is interfering with play there and that goal shouldn't have stood. Yeah. Well, I mean, what else do you say? I mean, the, the, the whole move to technology is to make the decision-making in football, which is a very fluid game, a binary thing, and it's not. Referees, uh, it's a lot of the other football codes are the same, but I think football's um, probably got a lot more room for error here. It is, the interpretation of the rules is so subjective. Um, and in this clamour to corporatise the sport, we, we try to sanitise things and have the same rules that are, well, the same rules are applied, but different interpretations game to game. That's just the way it goes. Um, and so now we have these tectonic plates crunching with our historic watching of football games and supporting of them and, and arguing about interpretations, but, but that's just part of the game, coming up against this need to have a binary system where it's either right or it's wrong. Uh, and it's causing, it just causes way too much grief. I would have thought Rashford was clearly interfering with play, so I don't understand quite how the goal uh, wasn't rubbed out. And, and it's the same with other offsides, uh, other offsides and other handballs, where you just think this is not what the laws were created to adjudicate for. We're, we're, making, we're making issues here where there mightn't have been before. So um, look, the controversy is not going to stop this week, Jules, to put it that way. We just wait seven days for the next roll, next lot to roll out. Yeah, it feels like that at the moment. Um, big weekend in the title race. We'll get that to, in a second. But... United's going really well. How impressive have you been with Eric Ten Hag? Not only the fact that he's got them playing well, it's a big win against their local rivals, but you know he had to deal with the whole Cristiano Ronaldo fallout and some tension with the, with the superstar. How impressed have you been in his early stages at Old Trafford? Well, he's, he's doing his job. Um, and, and I don't think we should be under any illusions. His job was to come in and clean Ronaldo out of the place. That's mm. my interpretation. No one else had the balls to do it. 
No one else um, had the gravitas to do it. Ten Hag's star was rising as a coach. He'd done very well in Champions League. He, he's a young, a young guy, still, still early enough in his career to believe his own BS um, <clears throat> and be fortified by his own ego. Um, and, and that's all balanced by, you know, his very, very good performance as a coach. And, and look, I'm under, they decided the, the Ronaldo project as, as, as commercial as it might have been to sell shirts and as effective as he was as an individual top scorer last year, you, you can't help but, but, but be of the, of the impression that, that the football people at Man United said, right, if we're actually going to challenge for the title, which is the point of this, we, we cannot do this Ronaldo experiment any longer. But none of them had the balls to do anything about it or the ability or the capacity. Um, and so that's the Ten Hag's immediate tenure was built around moving Cristiano Ronaldo out of the place and, and at, at probably at giving a personal cost, um, doing something he didn't really want to do but knew had to be done and, and engaged in this, this, this really quite ugly spat. Um, but it's worked. And I think now with Ten Hag, Firstly, having been able to, to move that piece, that very big piece, out of the dressing room, not only does that help what he wants to do with the football team, but but the power that that gives him now, the, that, that emboldens him in the, in that dressing room, which you can stare down the world's greatest and and get your way with it, then then that really does big things for the aura, his aura in the dressing room, and now his, his football now can take over. I don't think I'm reading too much into this, but that was what he was brought in mm. to do. And oftentimes, I've got to say, without without typecasting people, oftentimes in the world of football, it's Dutch coaches yep. who are asked to do that because they they have very strong wills. They do, and he, yeah, he's doing a good job. So they're fourth at the moment, Man United. They're five points clear of Spurs in fifth. They've got to give it to Newcastle United as well, having a great season. Uh, another win this morning. They're third. But now it's an eight-point gap, and... You know, really disappointing scenes at the end of the North London derby this morning where a Spurs fan kicked out at Aaron Ramsdale, the, the uh, keeper for Arsenal. But I don't think anyone, even the most ardent Arsenal fan, would have thought they could win the title this year. And now it's... I know we're only halfway through the season, but eight points is a significant gap. It is. No, it is. And certainly there's to lose from here. Uh, they've done a tremendous job. And um, you, you, you're right, Jules. You go into a season and, you know, you just you keep thinking based on history that it's going to be the usual suspects. It's not that Arsenal are a complete bolt from the blue, but, but what's made um, you know, what's made for their ascension in part has been Liverpool's collapse, which is another story. Mm. Who would have seen that coming? Um, if Sadio Mane leaves Liverpool, I know it's a very, talking about binary solutions, I think that's a very simplistic view of what's happening at Liverpool, but they lose a great striker and the whole thing collapses. I mean, Liverpool are in all sorts of trouble. No one would have predicted that. Um, and so whilst we're not talking about Arsenal being Leicester 2.0 because they're a massive club. I don't think anyone really foresaw Manchester City struggling to keep pace with them. Uh, of course, a long way to go. And, and watch the shadow that's going to be cast by Manchester United now. That's the way I'm watching this. I, I think now that they've cleaned the place out, and I, I use the term respectfully, given the individual batting we're talking, and, and what Ten Hag has been able to do. In his, he, uh, watch them. Watch them grow in the race. And... Uh, we, we could have a really exciting run to the finish line, actually. Another big week coming up. City hosts Tottenham and Manchester United play Arsenal on the weekend. What about um, Liverpool? 4-0 loss to Brighton. Uh, mm. it, you know, there's going to be a change in ownership there as well. Is, is How much pressure is on Jurgen Klopp? Are we talking pressure starting to build in terms of his role? 
Well, uh, it depends how much credit he's put in the bank. I would have thought he's got a fair bit of credit in the bank, but the fall has been reasonably precipitous. When you consider how how, how strong they've been in the last few years, that they've become so um, so febrile so quickly, really. Um, but it's but but the immediacy. Look, there's, there's no pressure immediate, immediately, I wouldn't have thought, um, but he'll be using up a fair bit of capital to restabilise the place. I don't quite know where they go from here, whether there's really hearing much in the transfer market, how much uh, our, our outgoing owner's going to spend on a squad that's not going to be their responsibility for much longer. I mean, he's dealing with all this as well. And, and when you get these change of ownership situations, it's human nature in the dressing room for people to start looking sideways. And if the dressing room's lost focus, which is a big part, of the Gegen Press um, style of of Jurgen Klopp, you really need everyone one thousand percent focused on the direction and the high energy direction in which you're going. And you lose a player or two, and other players start looking sideways. Even if you're Jurgen Klopp, in those circumstances, it can be very, very difficult to corral the troops. You'd have to say the season is a face saver from here, from Liverpool. Um, and the attention now is going to turn to these other clubs, in particular Arsenal, to see if they can maintain the rage and, and, and the re-emergence of Manchester United, which is something I fully expect to take place from this point on. Yeah, that's going to add an exciting element to the season. We're speaking to Andy Harper, Paramount Plus and Channel 10 football expert. Uh, locally, Andy, uh, when we spoke to you last week, you were saying it's time that you know Melbourne victory, in a sense, were put out of their misery. We need some uh, definitive answers in terms of their punishment. We got that. Just a, a quick thought on those punishments and, and then on their performance uh, in Adelaide to get a 1-1 draw on the weekend. Well, the punishments are heavy. I, I can't speak um, specifically about them, Jules, because you, well, I'm not privy to what they had to do, you know, how they had to deliberate the information they had. I'm, I'm surprised at this point, I must say, I'm not obfuscating, but I am surprised that Melbourne City have seemed to escape. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if there's something... Again, I'll, I'll reserve my final judgment because I'm not sure if there's something still in the pipeline for Melbourne City, but, you know, they're the home team. Um, surely had a, a more senior responsibility uh, as far as security was concerned. Their own fans were throwing flares too. Um so let's just give the benefit of the doubt that though that part of it's yet to roll out. Uh, and I don't want to go too hard. Again, because a very complex, difficult situation, a very traumatic situation, and I'd hate to have had to deliberate on this. But the, 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 the sanctions are heavy, I feel, for the club because the vast bulk of the club and its supporters have bear no responsibility whatsoever. But that's the way it goes. Um, I am surprised. I actually thought one of the most efficient things to do would have just been to have handed the Derby result to Melbourne mm. City. I, I do I find that one strange, I must say. Um, but, but, you know, we'll roll with it. And we'll, that, that'll attract its own measure of interest to, uh, to replay the, the remaining 70 minutes from 0-1 if you're a victory fan. Um, I just want to say on top of all this, though, Jules, how much, you know, you can only admire the, the players as we've seen how they've handled it in the short term and the coaching staff. You know, they were coughing and spluttering, you know, what turned out to be a really good game against Adelaide on the weekend. And you can only imagine how difficult it's been for them to be focused. What the hell's going on with our club, with my employment, um, with our season? Um, And they've been out of form before that, but also as a result of all the tumult. And they just fought so hard to get that result against a really good Adelaide team and scored a cracking goal, hopefully to 
be a bit of a catalyst for the change for them. But um, I, this is a watch this space really for victory. Uh, I just admire how the players are getting through it in the short term. Uh, still propping up the rest of the competition, but not the way they're playing. I think that'll turn very quickly. Yeah, great goal from Nick D'Agostino in that match. Uh, Jamie McLaren, disgraceful performance. Didn't score on the weekend. Not good enough. <laughs> yeah, sack him, Should sack be him, dropped. Yeah. Uh, now, had 31 shots to two, 13 corners uh, to zip, and 55 times they got the ball into the penalty area compared uh, to eight, yet one all with Western Sydney. Uh, right. I don't, what are you saying? That sort of thing can only, only ever happen. In soccer football, mm-hmm. if you have that, it just you know you Correct. put it in the Aussie rules. Put it in the Aussie rules, mate. If you if you're in, what do they call it? Entering the fifty inside, the yeah. 50. If you win the inside fifties by about forty, you're going to win the game. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, mate. If you get into the into the twenty meter zone in rugby league with that weight of possession, you're going to win by a hundred. Uh, same with rugby. This is this is one of the things, just one of the things that makes football such a fascination. Of uh, people on the edge say, "Oh, well, that's that's boring." And, but if you're in, into the game and you, you admire the resistance um, confronting uh, the Western Sydney Wanderers managed to put up confronting the might of Melbourne City in very hot conditions, uh, rode their luck. There's no question they rode their luck. But you get the, you get the chocolates at the end. And this is just one of the very fascinating things that makes football resonate with so many people around, around the globe. I don't think Marco Rudan's plan would be to play like that every week. I wouldn't have thought. I think there's probably, as time goes on, going to be more pressure from his fan base being a big club mm. in the competition to actually assert themselves more. But for the here and now, facing, to this point, a virtually unassailable Melbourne City who are completely dominant, you can you can forgive them on this day. And they, they scored a good goal to win it, and then they hung on. And they hung on for bloody an hour and a half. It was ridiculous. But anyway, it can only happen in football. Yeah, the heat was a bit of an issue over the weekend. Uh, just finally, Andy, where do we find you today? Normally you're in the car when we're chatting to you. You must do a lot of hours uh, in the yeah. car. Where do we find you today? Well, I did delay getting back in the car. I've come in for an early early um, a bit of surfing action with my son in Foster Tongue Curry. Absolutely gorgeous. We're just I'm just sipping on my first brew of the morning, Jules, and I've, we've been we've been in Wallace Lake. And we've been treasured to dolphins actually putting on an aerial performance in the lake. Absolutely sparkling up here on the mid north coast of New South Wales. Ah, beautiful, beautiful. And as always, uh, thanks for your time. We'll speak soon. Uh, enjoy the surf. My pleasure, Jules. See you soon. Great to talk to Andy Harper, Paramount Plus and Channel 10 football expert. Just off the 40 Wings temper, I was I was trying to get the information on this. City did hand down their own punishment to their supporters. They couldn't attend active areas for the last two home games. That's what a well-run club does, says Peter. After the break, we're going to chat the big story of the morning, really, in Australian sport, and that is the Wallabies have sacked their coach, Dave Rennie. Uh, Eddie Jones is coming back. Uh, Tom Decent. Uh, from the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, journalist who's been all over this story, uh, will join us after the break on mornings for the Hyundai Tucson Turbo Diesel in stock now. Welcome back to the show. Huge story in the world of rugby. Dave Rennie, the Wallabies coach, is out and replaced by a man that uh, Australian rugby know very well, Eddie Jones. Tom Decent from the Sydney Morning Herald has been all over this story and he joins us this morning. Morning, Tom. G'day, Jules. How are you going? I'm very well. Uh, thanks for your time. Is this is this stunned everyone? Oh, yeah, it has. Um, we knew that Eddie Jones was sort of on Rugby Australia's radar for the 2024, you know, um, season and beyond post this World Cup. But to, to pull such a move eight months out from a Rugby World Cup um, and sack Dave Rennie effectively immediately, um, yeah, it, it's a shock. It's a, it's a big call. 
Uh, but um, fascinating nonetheless as to how that's come to be in a very short space of time. Right call, though. I mean, it's not a great year for the Wallabies. Five wins from 14 tests, 38% strike rate for Dave Rennie. So well, sort of when the shock dies down and everyone sort of gets through today and, and gets their head around it, is it actually the right decision? Look, I think it probably is. Uh, I don't think the Wallabies are going to do any worse at the World Cup with Eddie Jones at the helm. Um, Rugby Australia has overseen some bad results for the last three seasons. Dave Rennie's win record was 38%. So it's, it's the worst of any Wallabies coach in the professional era. So to say that he was unfairly handled or been sacked without, you know, um, you know, unfairly, I, I don't think that's probably the right thing to say. Um, if Rugby Australia let this go on and, and the Wallabies bombed out in a quarterfinal or in the pool stages at the World Cup, then it's more on them. So they felt they needed to make a change. They wouldn't have made this change unless Eddie Jones became available, um, which happened obviously after he was sacked by England late last year, moving pieces behind the scenes very quickly. Um, It needed to be the right deal. And um, to land him on a five-year deal is actually a huge coup for Rugby Australia. They've secretly been wanting him for a little while. There have been whispers that they'd been in contact with him late last year. So for it to finally happen, but you do feel for Dave Rennie. He had a crazy amount of injuries that they had to deal with last year. They had a spring tour, which was up and down. You didn't know whether they were a good team or a bad team. So um, he would be mighty upset at not being able to finish off the job. Also says he's taking over the Wallaroo or oversee the Wallaroos program. For those that aren't aware of what that is, what, what does that mean? Yeah, so that's Australia's um, 15 side for women. Um, so basically there's the Australian women's seven side, but then there's also a 15 team. Um, that he will oversee. We need a little bit more detail on that as to whether he's going to be the head coach for that. I'm tipping not. I would just imagine he would oversee that program and sort of be a sort of women's director of rugby role as opposed to actually in the coach's box every every week for that because there are some games that do overlap there um, in terms of Wallaroo sometimes play the same day, same day as the Wallabies. So, but that is a world first to my knowledge. I don't think anyone has ever sort of mm. effectively overseen the women's and the men's program, particularly of a, a team as big as the Wallabies and the Wallaroos. Speaking to Tom Deason from the Sydney Morning Herald, big story of the day. Dave Rennie sacked as Wallaby coach, replaced by Eddie Jones, who signed a five-year contract. So in a statement to the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, Rugby Australia chairman Hamish McLennan said, it's a major coup for Australian rugby to have the best coach in the world return home to coach the iconic Wallabies and to see the... Uh, oversee the Wallaroos program. Eddie's deep understanding of our rugby system and knowledge of our playing group and pathways will lift this team to the next level. Is he still the best coach in the world, do you think? Oh, good question. You've asked English journos and they wouldn't say that. Um, There's very much uh, (laughs) polarising opinions up north as to whether he has lost um, his minus touch, but... Look, I think um, I think if there's a guy who can, you know, galvanise this Wallabies team eight months out from a World Cup, it is Eddie Jones. But um, in terms of the narrative, it's you know, considering the, the the sort of backstory to Eddie Jones, who was sacked as Wallabies coach in 05, he lost the Rugby World Cup in 2003. He's, he's yearned for that chance again to coach the Wallabies again. He's pretended like he was um, not interested for a long time there, but um, to finally get that chance um, and if he goes well and things you know the Wallabies stay on you know level field and can string some wins together and he stays in the job he'll be the head coach of the Wallabies at a, another home rugby world mm. cup 24 years after he did it in Sydney so um, great story um, and uh, it'll keep uh, everyone on their toes he's uh, a polarizing figure and uh, oh, this is going to be a roller coaster of a year heading into the world cup <laughs> I did uh, see a tweet suggest that exactly the same thing uh, hold your hats Eddie's back uh, there won't be a dull moment so given He's obviously rated so highly and, uh, you know, Rugby Australia said they've got the best coach in the world. So what will 
Rugby Australia's expectation be for this World Cup now that Eddie Jones is the coach again? That's a good question. The fact they've signed him on a five-year deal suggests that they don't care. Sorry, that's the wrong phrase. They do care about this World Mm. Cup, but, I mean, Eddie basically gets a free hit. I think that he can come in and inject something, a bit of a spark, um, and lead this team. They would be expecting to make a semi-final. They've got a very good draw, um, a good pull as well. If they can get Argentina in a quarter-final, then, I mean, again, that's a whole other story with Michael Checker as head coach of yes. Argentina up against Eddie Jones, who's now with the Wallabies. So that's could be a quarter-final to die for. But the Wallabies are probably would expect to make a semi-final despite some patchy results. Um, Eddie Jones said in his statement that he thinks the Wallabies can win the World Cup. I'm not quite sure about that, but um, we saw with England when he took over, they won 16 or 17 tests in a row when, when he took charge. So he has a knack of changing things up very quickly, and they've only got five or six tests before the World Cup starts. He needs to get busy. He lands in Sydney in a couple of weeks. He's in the UK at the moment, but uh, yeah, it's just certainly rocked the boat um, in Australian rugby today. And just before I let you go, Tom, so in a way, as you said, it's almost a bit of a free hit for Eddie Jones, given it's sort of a a long-term appointment. So for the players, does that take a little bit of pressure off going into this World Cup, or because he's so highly rated, um, does it actually increase the pressure that maybe some of the expectations, you know, maybe externally from Wallabies fans will go up that Eddie Jones is now back in charge? Yeah, potentially. I think the pressure will be on the players. They've known that the results have been quite mediocre over the last few years. Um, Eddie Jones will bring a, a very authoritative style. He, he will want results. And if you play poorly this year under Eddie Jones in his first year in charge and don't go well at the World Cup, he'll have no qualms flicking you. So there, there's more to this for the players than just a, a free hit of sorts. They'll be upset that Dave Rennie's left. He was well-liked amongst that group. Um, I think they'll be um, pleasantly surprised as to what sort of Eddie brings. He's um, known as a hard taskmaster. And, and, and in that short window, you know, I'm surprised he has taken the role. He's spoken about... You know, not being able to have control of these guys and you know being so close to a World Cup, but I guess the offer on the table to take him through to the 27 World Cup was too good to to not take. And um, yeah, a, a crazy, crazy story, and um, it'll be a wild ride. Yeah, I think it's shocked us all. I'm sure uh, for for you that uh, follows this closely, it would have been a shock uh, for you this morning as well. Hey, Tom, thanks so much for taking our call at uh, short notice. It's appreciated. No, all good. Anytime. Cheers. Tom Decent from the Sydney Morning Herald. Decent yarn, that one. Eddie Jones back for five years for the Wallabies. Dave Rennie gone after winning just five test matches out of 14 in 2022. Reminder coming up on our McCafe menu. Benny Graham's going to join us very shortly. The wildcard weekend continues uh, in the NFL. And after 11 o'clock, Gareth Hall from Giddy Up with Gareth to discuss what happened on the Gold Coast with the Magic Millions cancelled after just two races on Saturday. But now let's get the latest from the newsroom with Anna Pavlou. Mornings on SEN. Welcome back to the show. Julian DeStoop with you. Wildcard weekend continues uh, in the NFL. If you don't want to know the score of the game going on at the moment between the Giants and the Vikings, just cover your ears for a few seconds. Looks like this one's going to go down to the wire as well. Currently in the third term, it's the Giants 24. Uh, the Vikings, who are at home, 21. Of course, Ben Graham joins us for Neds. Whatever you bet on, take it to the Neds level. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. Uh, ben already had one game completed this morning and uh, a lot closer than a lot of people would have thought between the Bills and the Dolphins. Oh, absolutely it was, Jules. Good morning to you and the listeners. It was a 
fascinating game this morning. It looked like for all money the Buffalo Bills were going to do what the 49ers did to the Seahawks, and that was to prove that they're one of the best teams in the NFL right now. They scored. They scored early. They were 14-0 up in a heartbeat. Miami couldn't get anything going on offense. There was a point where Skylar Thompson, quarterback for the Dolphins, only threw one completed pass in about a quarter and a half. But all of a sudden, the game changed a little bit, and the Dolphins got back into it. Josh Allen threw a couple of interceptions. Not his fault. Uh, and but to start the second half, the Dolphins' defense, who had done a really good job changing their looks and their coverage and starting to harass, causing a bit of chaos, they tackled Josh Allen for a loss. He fumbled the football, and they scored a touchdown. And all of a sudden, you thought, hang on a minute. We could have an upset on our hands, but it was Josh Allen that steered the ship late. He ended up with 352 yards and three touchdowns. Stefan Diggs and Gabe Davis had 227 yards and a touchdown between them. And they just held on 34 to 31. And they progressed to the divisional round next week. What did you make of Skylar Thompson's uh, game, Ben? Obviously, um... Dolphins missing their first-choice quarterback due to uh, concussion protocols. What did you make of his performance overall? Well, it, it was a tale of two halves. First half, he looked nervous. He looked uncomfortable. It was a boom or bust kind of a game for him. And they couldn't run the ball, which didn't really help him either. But his second half was much better. Only the second rookie for a Miami Dolphins franchise that's made a start in a playoff game. His second half was pretty good um, as a third-string quarterback, and we've seen third-string quarterbacks like Brock Purdy for the 49ers take all before him. Not the case for Skylar Thompson this morning, though. Although you know he wasn't he wasn't too bad. He ended up with 18 from 45, which suggests he completed a lot less than half his passes. But when you think of Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddle, who as a duo over 3,000 yards on the season. They dropped a pass each. So did uh, Jeff Wilson. They had a couple of untimely penalties. They're the fourth most penalised team in the NFL. So there's a few things that didn't go well for Skylar Thompson. Not all his fault. But tell you what, they gave the Buffalo Bills and their crowd uh, one hell of a scare. And they could have won it. But uh, at the end of the day, they were their own worst enemy. Just take us through that play. Fourth and one, delay of game penalty, goes back to a fourth and six, and they couldn't get the job done. How does how does that happen at such a crucial stage of the game, which effectively cost them any chance to win? Well, generally the offensive coordinator will give the play through the mic and the, the earpiece of the quarterback. But Mike McDaniel called the plays today, and, bit of inexperience by Skylar Thompson, not aware of the play clock. It wasn't the first time that it happened, actually. There was probably three or four times where they were very close to not getting the play off, a couple of delay a game penalties. But at that crucial stage, when they got it to fourth and one, they took a long time to get the play into Skylar Thompson, a long time. By the time they realised that they executed the play uh, anyway, and it was a loss of yards. So if it wasn't a delay game, it would have been game over there or then, there and then, but they had their opportunity at fourth and six. Ultimately, it wasn't the reason that cost them. I know we like to pinpoint these things at the end of the game. They did have their chances, but unfortunately they couldn't execute. 
at the right time. And it's one of those ones where would you rather get beaten by 10 goals or lose mm-hmm. by a point? Well, it was a, dol- a Dolphins uh, year that was so up and down to think that they started that game so poorly, got back into the game, took the lead, but the Buffalo Bills were just too good in the end. It's been to Ben Graham. Thanks to Neds. Whatever you bet on, take it to the Neds level. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. You mentioned the tale of two halves. That was certainly the case uh, yesterday when the Jags beat the Chargers. 27-0 down. Their quarterback had thrown four interceptions, Trevor Lawrence, and then suddenly the game turned on its head in the second half. Just a and another amazing turnaround in a game of NFL. Well, and often we see when a team leads early, they go conservative, they run the ball, they try and take time off the clock. But the Chargers weren't able to run the football. But defensively, they've struggled at times throughout the year. It's stopping the run. But it wasn't the run they needed to stop. It was Trevor Lawrence in the second half. This was the biggest turn of events that you could imagine, particularly in a playoff game. They did trail 27-0. to They scored a late touchdown in the first half, Evan Ingram. So they went into the rooms at halftime 27-7. to So it was really on Doug Peterson to calm Trevor Lawrence down, put the first half behind them, and reset. He said at halftime on the way into the rooms, we just need to keep chipping away one play at a time. And that's exactly what they did. Trevor Lawrence in the second half was unbelievable four touchdowns, but there was a play at the end of the second half. The Jaguars, unlike the Dolphins, to put them in a winning position, it was fourth and one. Trevor Lawrence changed the play at the line of scrimmage, didn't like the defensive front, but Doug Peterson called a timeout to enable them the time to reset. And they fronted up looking like it was going to be a quarterback sneak and the running backs were going to push Trevor Lawrence over for a first down to put themselves in better position to kick a field goal to win the game. But Travis Etienne Jr. came from the left side, went down the right side. No one blocked him. He ran for 25 yards. We set up the game-winning chip shot field goal to win 31-30, a 27-point deficit. They've turned it around. It was such a phenomenal game for the Jaguars. Their defense has kept them in it for a lot of games this year, but it was their offense in the second half that got the job done and the opportunity for the Alas Chargers. They missed the field goal late, which probably sealed the deal for them. Too many penalties, untimely. Jaguars get to advance. Given what he's doing uh, for the 49ers, is it time that uh, Brock Purdy had a nickname change? It can't be Mr. Irrelevant anymore. Oh, absolutely not, Jules. It's just... To see what this young man's done, six career starts, 6-0 and in a playoff game. Yeah, he showed some nerves early against the Seahawks. The Seahawks led this game 17-16 to at halftime. But his ability, he career, season high 332 yards, equaled his best three touchdowns, season high 11 yards per completion. We know they've got a high-powered offense with Christian McCaffrey and Debo Samuel, Brandon Ayuk. George Kittle, and defensively, they are one of the best defences led by Nick Bosa, sacked Geno Smith three times. But a third-string quarterback drafted last in the draft to put up these kind of numbers in a playoff game is just unheard of. And even though they give these offensive rookie of the years to a player like a Kenneth Walker or 
a Garrett Wilson, someone that's played an entire season. What he's done in his six starts has been phenomenal. And I think it puts the 49ers as the best team in the NFC and has closed the gap between the likes of the Chiefs and the Bills and the Bengals in the AFC. It's just an extraordinary story. Amazing story unfolding uh, with that one. So right now we've got the Giants and the Vikings. Then coming up after that game, it's the Ravens and the Bengals. Then tomorrow to complete the wildcard weekend, it's the Cowboys and Tom Brady's Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Who do you like in the game that's going on now, given it's tight, 24-21 in favour of the Giants and uh, also the, the two remaining wildcard matches? Yeah, well, I'm a, I'm a glass half full when it comes to the Vikings, unlike a lot of people who uh, think that it's uh, a false economy. It's been a great game, this. It's been touchdown for touchdown. Daniel Jones is having a career day at the moment in the air and on the ground. I think I trust the Vikings in the fourth quarter to, if they are behind to come back and win this game. But tell you what, what a performance by Brian Dayball it has been at the Giants. But Maybe we do have another upset on the cards brewing in Minnesota. This afternoon, I think the Bengals take care of business at home against their AFC North rival of Ravens. They beat them last week. They're firing on all cylinders, particularly their offense. And the Ravens without Lamar Jackson, I think it's going to be an uphill battle. But really looking forward to tomorrow's game, Jules, the Cowboys and the Buccaneers. They met week one where the Buccaneers won comfortably and everyone wrote the Cowboys off. But I think what they've done across the season, if they can take care of the football, if Ezekiel Elliott and Tom and Tony Pollard can run the football as effectively as they have all season, if Dak Prescott takes care of the football, that should be good enough to beat the Buccaneers in Tampa, who go into this playoff series with a losing record, but they do have Tom Brady, and we know his record <laughs> in the playoffs. We can never write them off. But he's been a, a little up and down, Tom Brady and the Buccaneers offense, and if there's Cowboys defense can find a way to force 50 attempts through the air, pick him off a couple of times, force a couple of turnovers. I think the Cowboys will win in a close one. But they bill it as Super Wild Card Weekend, Jules, and it certainly lived up to the reputation. Just a quick one before I let you go. And I was driving in this morning. Is there a competition to see how far you can still kick the ball? Uh, yes, uh, we did do, thanks to Ty Power, a little competition, a guessing game. Uh, Got to say, I had to warm up for that particular uh, shoot, Jules, but got away with it unscathed, and good luck with your tip, because I hit a bomb. <laughs> Very good. I was going to ask you how you went. I know you can't give away the distance, but sounds like uh, you've still got it. Uh, Benny, thanks for your time this morning. Uh, we look forward to chatting again uh, next Monday as the uh, playoffs continue. Thanks, Jules. Great to chat to Ben Graham. Uh, thanks to Ned's Take. Whatever you bet on, take it to the Ned's level. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. We'll be back after the break on mornings for the Hyundai Tucson Turbo Diesel in stock now. Welcome back to Mornings. Julian DeStoot with you. The racing action never stops. Either is this man, Gareth Hall. Last week, Gold Coast. This week, Perth. He's been good enough to join us this morning. Hello, G. Jules, great to be with you. Yeah, it's been a busy time and it was a it was an interesting weekend. Um, there was plenty happening, to say the least. What, what are you doing in Perth this week? Well, we had a Perth Cup runner. Um, and um, so after the Gold Coast and after doing the... Um, winners to the millions on Saturday morning back in Melbourne. We headed over to Perth 
um, for the Perth Cup. It was take two of the Perth Cup. It was unfortunately had to be postponed mm. after um, uh, an incident there on New Year's Day. So we're over in Perth and it's been pretty good fun. Um, up nice and early to do giddy up. But, um, <laughs> Very early yeah. start. <laughs> Um, no, it's been a lot of fun as always, mate. And Optus Stadium, I tell you what, where they've got the SEN studios here, it's just a terrific place. And um, this is the best stadium, I think, in the country at the moment. So looking forward to the football season recommencing. But there's still plenty of cricket to be played, of course, here with the Scorchers going okay. Outside of the MCG, of course, you mean. Best stadium in the country. Yes. yes. Oh, well, it's a, it's a, a new modern stadium. Um, Optus Stadium. I haven't um, been yet, but I look forward to going. Yeah, Everyone. well, you, you shouldn't really comment if you haven't been, Jules. <laughs> now, Buster Bash uh, did it pretty comfortably in the Perth Cup. Yeah, he was terrific for David Harrison. He had a lovely run. He had a terrific turn of foot. There was question marks whether he would get a strong 2,400 metres, but because the way that that race was run, um, it enabled him to still finish off strongly because they didn't go overly quick, and he was the best horse in the race, and he raced away for a – a uh, uh, dominant victory. So he'll have a break now after having a chat to David Harrison on Giddy Up this morning. And it looks like they'll try and find a trainer in the eastern side of the country. And um, he'll be set for some of the country cups, I would imagine, coming up in the spring. So well under Harrow. He's one of the good blokes of the racing industry in WA. And it's a great story. They only purchased this horse for $10,000 at a winter sale in Perth, a Magic Millions winter sale. So um, he's been one hell of a buy, and he was terrific on the weekend. Obviously, the big story was the Magic yep. Million. So called off after two races uh, due to the big wet. Uh, so the the track manager or the curators spoken about there might have been a, an issue with a sprinkler. There's also been talk that he was you know might have been a bit misled by the forecast. So what will the fallout be here? And is there, is there blame to lay at the feet of anyone? How does it will it all play out from here? Well, he's come under attack, Navesh Ramdani, especially on social media, who's the track curator on the Gold Coast since Saturday. He was a track curator that's well-respected in the game. He was at the ATC for a long time in Sydney looking after Rose Hill and Ramwick. And then he was poached, basically, by the Gold Coast to head up their um, renovations, basically, for a new track, which will be happening straight after Thursday, now Thursday's meeting of the Gold Coast. So... Um, it's a it's a tie track, the Gold Coast um, track, and unfortunately for Navesh, there was a sprinkler that leaked, and that caused a little bit of surface water on the track. So he had to move out the rail a little bit, so they got away from that that wet patch um, on Saturday. But the problem was the rain that the unpredicted rain of thirty mils that arrived on Saturday, and the track just simply couldn't handle it. And it's difficult. And we had this chat with Wayne Hawks this morning with. Um, what track curators do under this particular situation. Now, it's a little hard to explain to people who don't know racing, but so most of the, the, the requirements around the country for track curators is to present a track at a good four, um, which is the perfect surface according to racing jurisdictions. So it's been, it was a hot week on the Gold Coast, the drying conditions, and the week before they had a fast track there, um, on the Gold Coast, they were running really fast times. So Navesh decided to water the track um, and put 40 mils on the track since that Saturday meeting a week before the millions. And it was only by, by the time Friday rolled along, it was a beautiful week there weather-wise on the Gold Coast. And there was only a mil predicted, I think, and a 40% 40 40 of, 
uh, 40% chance of rain on the Saturday, according to the to the Weather Bureau, the bomb. And unfortunately for Nevesh, um, the Weather Bureau got it wrong and there was more rain as expected, which meant that the track had too much water and it didn't cope with it. And it was just drizzly, annoying rain, which is difficult for the track um, uh, to cope with because it can't dry out. So, yeah, he didn't have any luck. Um, and the track's tired. It does desperately need an upgrade. So that's what they're doing after the race meeting on Thursday. But it wasn't good because there was a lot of money up for grabs. It's Queensland's biggest race day now. There would have been about $80 million um, invested from a punting perspective at that meeting. That won't be happening come Thursday. So it was just a complete and utter disaster for everybody involved. But unfortunately, it's an outdoor sport and sometimes this situation comes up. Um, but yeah, it wasn't a good day for, for the Gold Coast Turf Club or Racing Queensland or for, for the Magic Millions for that fact after they had a really successful sale um, leading up to their race day. It's been a Gareth Hall from Giddy Up with Gareth SEN Track. Got this one off the 40 weeks temp, and I thought I heard this when I was um, here listening to some audio this morning. So it says, am I correct in that they asked the jockeys to vote on whether the race should continue, or the races, and if so, is that normal? Yeah, because the jockeys, safety is paramount in this situation. The jockeys are the ones putting their, their – um, they're putting their lives on the mm. line by competing in, in this sport. It's the only sport – that the ambulance follows them around. So they should get the say whether they feel safe in competing on a racetrack that's been affected by rain or the visibility. The visibility was bad as well on Saturday. So they are consulted by the stewards and they also consulted the trainers and the jockeys and the trainers came to the conclusion that they thought it would be best if they moved the meeting, whether it would have been on Sunday, yesterday, or that they give the track a little bit more time to dry out and, and they race on Thursday. So, yeah, jockeys do have a strong say on where the meetings go ahead and they should have the final say because it, it's them that are competing um, and putting their lives on stake to 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 race and, and compete. So I think they should get the, the, the final say and that was the case. The jockeys basically thought that it wasn't safe for them to and the horses to compete on Saturday, and that's why they postponed that meeting. So how does it work Thursday now in terms of, like, how many people will go that might have gone on Saturday? Will they turn up on Thursday? And how much sort of, I guess, gloss is taken off the event, the fact that it's now being run as a midweek race day? Yeah, it's, it's not ideal, but I don't know what other choice that they had because they they could have run it yesterday, and I think if they knew that the weather was going to be like it was yesterday, it was a beautiful day on the Gold Coast, and they would have competed on a Sunday um, but there was rain predicted overnight, so they had to make a decision on Saturday. And once again, the Weather Bureau wasn't on the money. So um, they decided to go to the Thursday because it was um, fine conditions for the majority of the week leading up to the Thursday. And there's no Queensland meeting on a Thursday. Now, many people say, well, they should have just pushed it back a week to a Saturday. But if they did just that, that means Racing Queensland would have had to sacrifice the Saturday Metropolitan meeting which would have cost them more money because they would have lost a lot of money regarding their revenue that they would get back from the turnover that last Saturday would have produced. And they're going to cop a, a massive hit because they, as I pointed out, they usually turn over around $80 million on Magic Millions Day. It's their, clearly their, their biggest day of the year. Um, so they probably might only get half of that now because usually on a Saturday when you've got 
a big meeting like the Gold Coast that's supported by a Flemington and a Rose Hill mm. card and Metropolitan Racing in the other states as well. So they are going to take a hit. Um, but if they went to the Saturday, turnover would have been better um, than what would have happened or that what would happen on a Thursday. But then they would have had to sacrifice another Metro meeting. And it's not fair on, say, participants in Queensland because – they would have targeted certain horses, even though it's lower grade and hasn't got their um, the, the 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 prize money um, that they would be competing for, like on a Magic Millions day. There's still there's still um, a lot of money up for grabs, and trainers um, they make sure that they prepare their horses if they've got a campaign. So if they miss out on competing in a metro race, like on a Saturday, it makes it difficult for them. So I think they had to come up with that decision and it's not ideal but that's just the way it is unfortunately. Speaking of jockeys Gareth we know they're tough and they're, they're quite often riding with injuries. Jamie Carr at the moment uh, riding basically with a, a broken foot. She said she's got a bone chip currently causing her pain in the saddle. Um, she's going through a bit at the moment just to get out there and race. Yeah they're tough these jockeys. It's not like other sports where if you've got a broken foot you won't be able to run but they just need to sit on a horse so you should be in a little bit of discomfort, Jamie, but um, when there's so much prize money up for grabs, especially with Magic Millions Day, she had a couple of really nice rides in two $2 million events there last Saturday on the Gold Coast. And then after the Magic Millions, basically the summer slash autumn carnival gets into full swing in Melbourne and then they've got the bigger races in Sydney. So these jockeys, it's hard for them if they've got an injury um, to take a little bit of a break. So if they can ride through the pain, then there's too much money up for grabs for them to to um, take a couple of weeks off. So she's tough, Jamie. Um, she'll get through it, but it's not ideal, but it hasn't stopped her riding well. She rode the first yeah. winner. In fact, they had a couple of races on the Gold Coast before that meeting was postponed, and she rode that first winner, the favourite in the Country Cup. So she's still riding really well, but um, like any athlete, sometimes that you have to just get through some tough moments and – um, fight through that pain barrier and be resilient a little bit. And that's what Jamie's doing at the moment. But she's, we all know how, how good a jockey she is. And um, it hasn't stopped her performing on the track. Just like in your sporting days, Gareth, I'm sure you would have played through <laughs> the pain barrier. Now, no. Gareth, now, Gareth, now we understand yep. it was a no-brainer to call the races on off up on the Gold Coast, of course, as you've explained. But Murray Bridge. Yeah. <laughs> now, Murray Bridge. So it wasn't raining. It was hot. It was windy, and then just like when you deliver a gag, the tumbleweeds came through and they had to call it off. Yeah, you're working beautifully here, Jules. <laughs> Some of you better stuff. You've, and Wayne Hawks is telling me that you've really come on leaps and bounds with your racing knowledge over the summer period when you've been filling in for Jared. But, you know, I felt for the Murray Bridge Turf Club because it was out of their control. Strong winds. It was a hot day. They pushed the back, pushed back the race beating because of the, the heat there in South Australia. But... Um, obviously Murray Bridge is in regional South Australia and there's some farmland surrounding that racetrack. And when it's a hot day and it's been pretty dry in that part of the world, um, the, the tumbleweeds ran havoc and the race club can't control that. They can't tell the farmers to make sure that they spray their tumbleweeds because they don't want them impacting a race meeting. But it was a, I've never seen that before. It probably won't ever happen again. But unfortunately for Murray Bridge, <laughs> would you believe? And 
Um, when it rain, it when it rains, it pours. Um, so we had that situation on the Gold Coast, which was hard to believe. We had the early start at Flemington, and many people forgot Flemington was on mm-hmm. because of that heat policy. And then, would you believe the tumbleweeds cause havoc at Murray Bridge, and they have to abandon their race meeting after race number two. So it was a forgetful day for the racing community on Saturday. And who calls them Rolly Polies? I don't know. Is that a no. South Australian thing? Is that like Palmy? But and you're Palmer? not a country boy. You wouldn't even know what a uh, tumbleweed is, would you? Yeah, I know what a tumbleweed they're is. Bloody annoying. Yeah, they're, they're annoying, especially um, when there's not too much rain about um, in country areas. They um, they can ruin your garden, and it's no good for playing backyard cricket either. So, or if you've got a pool in country uh, country area, and the tumbleweeds. Um, <laughs> Um, cause problems with your pool, so it's just unfortunate. But it was a it was a freak occurrence there on Saturday. So what can you do, yeah. Mother Nature? It's an outdoor sport, and sometimes you got to overcome these particular hurdles. And unfortunately, you can build a roof. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> plenty of money in racing. There is plenty of money in racing, but I don't know if Murray Bridge would be high on the priority for racing South Australia building a roof. I grew up in the Dandenong Ranges, my friend. That's basically That's country. That's country, Jules. That's basically country. No. Um, have you had, have you had um, Heppel on this week, the Essendon no, captain? No, here we go. You, now, now the tumbleweeds will come through if you're trying to be yeah. funny. No, footy season not far away. I was, I was having a coffee in um, Fremantle yesterday and had a couple of um, Fremantle fans having a chat. And they Recognized believe, they, you, did they? Yeah, they did actually from the days back at Perth. Um, <laughs> Uh, they said, just get on. We're going to win the flag. So there you go. They won't even make the eight, mate. Yeah, I agree with you. Their, their list has actually got job. worse. Yeah. With I ran into Darcy done. Gardner on the Gold Coast. I'm dropping names a bit like oh. you these days. But <laughs> he was telling me the boys um, from Brisbane, Dunkley, settled in nicely. Ascroft is a he's a young man with a an old head. Um, he's been one of the most professional there on the training track, the number one draft pick. So the Lions surely have to be favourites with all markets favorites? heading into this season. They have to be. Who's favourite? Well, the team that won it last year, pretty good. Yeah, I know, but um, you got Tommy Hawkins that'll miss half the season. They haven't got Joel Selwood, their inspirational skipper. Oh, I think that the Lions have got the, the Cats covered this year. Oh, we'll, we'll see. Now, so will you, will you go to the Gold Coast on Thursday? No, no. Um, I'll be back in Melbourne. I'll watch them from... Um, Melbourne, but I'm looking forward to it. It'd give us something to look forward to on a Thursday. Well, the Australian Open's on. That's pretty good. Yeah, but the Australian Open, it lacks a little bit of star power for me this year. Um, oh, well, hang on a second. Uh, what, Novak Djokovic, Rafa Nadal, are not big yeah. enough names for you? You name five women in the draw for us, Jules, right now. <laughs> Some household names. Yeah, Iga Swiatek is the world number one by the stop. length of the Flemington Strait. Jessica yeah, McCullough, world number three. Yeah, stop Googling. Of the stop stop I'm not Googling. Googling. I'm just the reeling is- off some names. With no Wash Barty, the Australians had to get a wild card. In fact, there was no one that actually made their way from a rankings point of view into the final draw, so we had to give them a free pass. So, Kyrgios, if he goes out in the early rounds, the Aussie Open is in all sorts. Well, of you things. don't rate Coco Goff or Caroline Garcia? You don't rate no. these players? No. No? No. Belinda Bencic, so. superstar, <laughs> Maria Sakari. You don't rate any of these players? No. Is, is Maria Sharapova play? No, she's not. No, she's not. She's not. Probably. They need John McEnroe back in the draw. I watched that Channel 9 documentary. Oh, was that any good? Him. I wanted to watch yeah, that. It was, I didn't it last was night. far better than the Netflix documentary going on in that tennis. That disappointed. Well, didn't they bury the lead in that? 
I didn't well, they know buried hardly, a lot they of things. hardly spoke about the biggest drama in tennis for years, Novak being deported. They glossed over it in about 40 seconds, Sam. Yeah, records. and they lacked that much content that they had to continue to show vision of tennis players playing on the tennis court that we've already seen. But we wanted to be behind the scenes. <laughs> anyway, it sounds like you and I are just having a phone conversation, so we probably should move on, uh, get to the news. And uh, thank you for joining us, uh, Gareth, this morning. All right then, Jules. Make sure you get off the stadium. You must have been very up early this morning. Oh, yeah, I was, I'm ready to go. Um, I might go out for a bit of a run now and, um, yeah, get back to Melbourne today. Go out for a run. Give me a spell. You're just going to go and have some breakfast and have a sleep. Uh, thanks for your time, my man. We'll talk to you soon. Good on you, Jules. Thanks for that. Gareth Hall uh, is in Perth. He'll be back in Melbourne uh, later in the week. You can hear him every morning on Giddy Up with Gareth on SEN Track. Uh, let's get to Anna Pavlou in the newsroom. Welcome back to the show. Dwayne Russell, not too far away with Dwayne's World. He'll be down at Melbourne Park for the next uh, couple of weeks, and it's the run home with Josh Jenkins and Adam Cooney. So we're going to talk the test. Of course, the second series of the test is out now on Amazon Prime. A good point from Gabe. I apologise. It's not Czechoslovakia anymore. It's the Czech Republic. Uh, So apologies uh, for that one. But uh, a lot of the focus in the test is around the end of Justin Langer's tenure uh, as Australian coach. So here's just a snippet of the Australian players talking about Justin Langer in this series. From my perspective, yeah, I could say that he, he lost a fair few players and probably the wrong players. I think four years is a very long time as a as a head coach. The team had changed a lot over that four-year period. Um, we're probably in need of a, a different support staff, a different coach, um, as opposed to four years ago when JL started. Day one of a four-test match series. We know it's going to be a bit... He was brilliant when we needed him in those initial years. After South Africa, he turned it around. We became a team that the Australian fans wanted to support again. You left the the team in a better place than when he started. Where the Australian cricket team is right now, I think that's a byproduct of what JL brought into the group. So there was, I guess, some mixed thoughts on uh, Justin. I think Simon O'Donnell made a fair point this morning. Some He might have just been the right coach for the right time when he took over, a bit like John Morsefold at Essendon. In the end, it, it, it didn't work long-term, but at the time, to settle the whole place down, it was the right Appointment. So that was a, a range of voices there. You heard Usman Khawaja, Nathan Lyon, uh, Dave Warner. Uh, this is the, well, the now captain, uh, Paddy Cummings, Cummins, of course, talking about Justin Langer. I was going to say something straight away, and I thought there's just so much rubbish out there and so much noise that <clears throat> let's just give it a couple of days. So I remember sitting down, and I, just, I just basically wrote down a few thoughts. Now that a decision has been made by Justin to resign and giving his own public comments and others by Cricket Australia... I can provide some clarity. To be a better place for Australia from this solid foundation, we need a new style of coaching and skill set. This was the feedback the players gave to Cricket Australia. Many former players have reached out to me and silently offered me their advice, which is welcome. Some others have spoken in the media, which is also welcome and comes from a love of the game and their support of a mate. To all past players, I want to say this. Just as you have always stuck up for your mates, I'm sticking up for mine. It was incredible, it was eloquent, it was thoughtful and it was supportive of his players. I thought, you know what, this is a sign of a very strong captain. So that was Pat Cummins there and you heard uh, Nathan Lyon and uh, Mitch Marsh was also in uh, the first uh, 
little snippet of audio speaking pretty positively about uh, Justin Lang. I got one here off the 40 Wings temper. What I took from the test is that the bowlers were the ones who were most unhappy with Langer. So the lesson is don't mess with the bowling cartel. So Justin Langer, he's done a few podcasts. Uh, most recently, he's done the Cricket Etc. Uh, podcast uh, with Pete Lawler, who, of course, you hear on uh, the SEN uh, Cricket uh, T- um, coverage and also Gideon Hay, respected uh, cricket journo. And uh, Justin Langer revealed on that that uh, he doesn't think he'll return to the coaching fold. I don't think I'll coach again. No, I don't think I'll coach again. But um, and, and the, the, the craziness is, and it's really strange in cricket, if you think about a lot of the other codes, the best coaches are a lot older. And it doesn't make sense in cricket. Like, I reckon. I say I'm not going to coach again, but I reckon I'm 10 years I've been the best coach I could be yet. I honestly reckon, because things don't shock you, things don't surprise you. And this is, not only, the only thing I say about, you asked about Cricket Australia before, Mm. five five chairmen, four CEOs, and three high performers in four years, well, they've done the same with the head coaches. They just keep turning them over all. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense. Um, in cricket, I'm talking about cricket in general. So, so pro- probably ten of my best years wasted of coaching, but you know that's life. So that was Justin Langer there. He also spoke about what hurt him the most over the last twelve months. And I say it hand on heart. The hardest thing about my last twelve months was there was this narrative that I hated the players, or the players hated me back, and that literally broke my heart. Because everything I've done for the whole time, when I was in West Australia coaching the Scorchers, when I was with Phil Hughes when I first started, and Steve Smith, I come up with them as kids as an assistant coach. I went straight from playing, and they're like, so I kept reading all this stuff. Yeah, a lot of people, but some of the players might not have liked my style, and I am serious. I can be intense, but they know how much I love them, and they love me back. So I kept reading this narrative, and it literally broke my heart. And that's why when you say, Will I be a better coach next time? I, I, for my family and I, I'm just not sure I can go through that again. And, the narr- and every time I read it now, Justin, they don't talk about my results as a coach. They just talk about the, the coach who fell out with his players. And that kills me. That, that kills us. And I'm sure a lot of people in this room are, are, are parents, right? I'm absolutely certain that my four daughters are beautiful kids. They turn out to be great adults. I'm sure a lot of the times they thought, as they would view as a parent, they don't agree with your decisions. I'm keeping them accountable, or I'm making sure I'm keeping them safe, or I'm looking after them. I've got their best interests at heart. My kids love me unconditionally, right? As a coach, sometimes you have to do that. You've got to pull them into line. You've got to have the bigger picture in mind. And some people aren't going to like that. But because they're not your actual kids, they're going to say, oh, well, he's disposable. That's fine. So that's life, you know, but, but that's the killer because you've got to, in leadership, you've got to love your family and that's important. Pretty powerful stuff there from Justin Langer saying it, it broke his heart, the narrative that uh, his players uh, didn't like him. He expanded on that a little bit further, talking about his relationship with the players. Yeah, I'd like to think I had it with 95% of the players, actually. And I think it's the most important thing that... You, you um, build relationships with your play with the players. So yeah, I've got some very very special relationships. If you had have listened to the media over the last 12 months, 
I had no relationship with the player, but it literally could not be further from the truth. So, yeah, I've got a lot of um, very tight bonds with the players, and I'll cherish them, and I'll have them for the rest of my life. So, uh, But you learn, right? It's like what I learned from... Steve Waugh backing me in or Ricky Ponting backing me in or Alan Border backing me in or that's what leaders do they back in their people and uh, and I've said this a lot of times before most of my players who I've coached in the last 12 years they feel like my sons some of them, are, you know, you don't have the same relationship with all of them but yeah so he's a passionate man Justin Lang, interesting I haven't had time to explore it now but do you think he will coach again? Does he sound like a man there that will never coach again? There's one that came through straight off the 40 Winks uh, temper text, uh, temper a mattress like no other. Those comments sound like a bloke who will coach again, uh, if you ask me. So, yeah, I'm not convinced that Justin Langer uh, will never coach again. He just speaks like a coach, and he's too young to not coach again. Now, let's get our final break away. We'll check in with Dwayne uh, down at Melbourne Park uh, after the break. The Australian Open is underway and uh, we've got a couple of Aussies in action. Uh, one at the moment, Olivia Gadecki uh, on serve in the first set. She leads 5-4. This is mornings for the Hyundai Tucson Turbo Diesel. It's in stock now.